All right, very good. Hold fast the form. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 this morning as we continue our time in 2 Timothy. A few weeks ago in our time together on Tuesday night, uh, this would have been, of course, uh, on, the, uh, on, on Jitsi on, online, um, we considered a, a metaphorical picture in Psalm 1. And the metaphorical picture that we saw there was a believer as a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, within the scope of this metaphor, the tree, in spite of whatever elemental trials it might face, was able both to remain and to prosper, allowing its roots to grow deep, allowing it to bear fruit in its season because it was planted by the rivers of water. Right? So no matter what was happening in the world around it, no matter what was happening uh, uh, in, in the surrounding circumstances, it was able to stand, it was able to bear fruit in its season, it was able to prosper because it was constantly by the source of strength, constantly by the source of nourishment. And this concept, this concept of standing, of holding in, in regardless of circumstances, in the day of joy, in the day of sorrow, in the day of, of prosperity, in the day of lack and of want, holding the line. It's, it's quite common both in the Old and in the New Testament, and it fits beautifully with that picture in Psalm 1. It aligns very much with that concept in Psalm 1 of the tree. The tree is not strong in itself. The tree did not find prosperity simply in itself. It's strong, it's prosperous, it bears fruit in its season, it can handle, uh, it, it, it can withstand whatever the circumstances surrounding it are because it is planted by that river of water. Of course, that river of water being, as we see it metaphorically throughout the scriptures, the word of God, right? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And this concept of standing, of holding the line, is in fact one of the most basic operational principles of the, the Word of God, and it, it is necessary because of a basic operational principle that God has built into the world, and that is the idea of decay. The scientific word for this often is entropy. Everything within the system that is created, everything within the created world, is and will break down right? Everything is breaking down. Everything is headed from a, uh, from a state of order to a state of decay or disorder. And this is obvious all around us. Our bodies break down as we age. We go from being strong and vibrant and healthy to, as we get older and older and older, uh, a state of breaking down, a state of decay. Our buildings break down as they age. Systems, structures, organizations, civilizations, break down over time. And the only thing that stops this process of decay is renewal, right? You go online, you're looking for a product, you can buy a product new or you can buy a refurbished product, a renewed product, right? The idea being that someone has taken a product that had broken down in some way, shape or form and they had renewed it, they had refurbished it, they had in some way fixed it, brought it back up to an operational standard, still not necessarily going to be new, but it's going to function perhaps like new if all goes as planned. Things need repair, need maintenance and need care if they're going to be maintained as healthy and operational. And doctrine is no different than anything else in this regard. If doctrine, if we, as it relates to our Christian lives, and if we, as it relates to sound doctrine, if we are going to maintain the, 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 the state of sound doctrine, it's going to need to be cared for. We are going to have to carefully, deliberately hold fast to sound doctrine. We need to maintain it if it's going to last. And this is what we speak of this morning in our time in 2 Timothy. We're looking at verses 13 through 18 this morning. In verse 13, uh, the Bible begins this way. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ 
Jesus. Now, remember briefly with me our context. In verse 7, Paul reminded Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We came back to that last week in kind of an application message for those of you uh, that were able to hear it as it related to uh, the reality of sharing the gospel, uh, both in word and indeed with the world that is around us. The spirit of timidity, and that's what that word fear means. This is not the typical word for fear, uh, which speaks of uh, that, that um, feeling that strikes your heart of, uh, in the days of, the, uh, of unknowns and, and such, that, that fearful uh, um, spirit within you, but this is a spirit of timidity uh, that, that is being specifically spoken of here, that God has not given us the spirit of timidity, the spirit of fear, but rather of boldness, power, love, sound mind. We talked through each of those last week and the, and the outworking of power and of love and of a sound mind in our hearts uh, through the spirit of the Lord. Boldness to do the work unto which we are called. And to this end, we must not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. We are called not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. And the reason why we might be tempted to be ashamed is because the testimony of Christ may often be accompanied by a measure of suffering, right? Be that the relatively minor suffering of being mocked or disregarded or excluded the relatively minor suffering of being seen as one who is on the outside looking in, that you're in a group of people and you are clearly the one who is not like the others, that uh, you uh, stand out as it relates to society and culture around you, that people don't necessarily uh, want to be in your immediate company because of the conviction in their hearts or the hope that lies within you, you can lose relationships. And then we take it to the next level. Physical violence. And then, of course, many throughout history uh, even suffering death for the name of Jesus Christ. Last week we read a missionary letter about a young lady in a Muslim country who just accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior and now is being deeply abused by her family, has been disowned by them, and uh, she is, is under threat of death for her profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not uncommon in the world that is around us. It's excessively rare in our culture and in our time, and we thank the Lord for that. But never forget that there are people all around the world, in the Middle East, in the Philippines, in Malaysia, Cambodia, many Muslim countries, who they proclaim the name of Christ and they are killed. And so there's any number of reasons why we might have the spirit of timidity and not power and love and of a sound mind because of these fears. And yet Paul said in verse 12 that though he suffer, he is not ashamed. See, because we don't give the gospel, we don't hold the line on doctrine, we don't do these things because of any result in this life. We don't do these things or not do these things because of what it's going to mean for us in this physical body. I don't give the gospel, I don't hold the line on sound doctrine because I want to be liked or because I want to have a lot of friends or because I enjoy not being liked or because I'm a contrary person and I, 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 I enjoy the, the, the contrariness. I don't do it for any of those reasons. Much to the contrary, we do these things because God has promised to keep that which I've committed unto him against the day of judgment. Because God has promised to keep that which I've committed unto him against the day of his return. And so Paul commands us here, uh, by way of commanding Timothy, to hold fast, to hang on tight, to not let these things slip. And the thing unto which he calls us to hold fast is what he says is the, the, the form of sound doctrine or the form of sound words. Now let's talk about what this means. When Paul speaks of sound words, he is speaking of the doctrines which have been given by Jesus and his chosen representatives. That would be the apostles of Jesus Christ to the church. Jesus commissioned his apostles to go out into the world and to preach the gospel, to be representatives of himself. Direct authorities, as it related to the, 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 those, those uh, first generation apostles, direct authorities speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus left his apostles to be those transitioning authorities between what he had established in the Old Testament through the Levitical priesthood through the theonomy of Israel, 
whereby Israel would be a city on a hill and others would come to its light, would be drawn into its light and would seek into its God. God appointed the apostles to be the transitioning authorities between that time of, of authority in Israel and what he was about to do through this new body, this new institution that we call the church. And so the initial apostles of Jesus Christ, those first 12 men were of the tribes of Israel, were men that represented those 12 tribes of Israel, were meant to, to be God's authority by which to transition from one to the other. Of course, Paul and Barnabas being added to apostolic authority as uh, the book of Acts goes on. Paul would spend much time in 1 Corinthians defending his apostolic authority and would also express in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So we've seen this picture any number of times and I use it regularly, not just because the Bible uses it, but because it's a really wonderful picture. Jesus Christ as that cornerstone and then the apostles being the foundation aligned 100% with that cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, and then the church being built upon that foundation. And the commission upon Timothy then was to take the sound words, the sound doctrine which had been established by Jesus Christ, by the apostles and by the prophets, all of it laid out in God's word, and to hold fast to it, and then to also hold fast to its pattern. It to its form, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. There are two very important concepts presented in this, and the first is simply that determination, hold fast. And then second is that, that, that idea of the form, the pattern of the things unto which we hold fast. And I'm certain that Paul commanded Timothy in this manner quite intentionally. That Paul calls for Timothy to hold fast two sound words to hold two sound doctrine, of course, is not unique or unexpected in, in relation to Paul as an apostle commanding Timothy, uh, the pastor or the leader there in the church of Ephesus for this time. Jude verse 3 calls us to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 2 calls us to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So Peter calls for the people to be mindful of the prophets and of the apostles, right? To be mindful of their words, to be careful to hold fast to their teachings. Paul's instructions to Titus in regard to his ministry in Crete regularly exhorted the pastor to teach and to instill sound doctrine in the men and the women of the church. You're very familiar with Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, which commands the elderly men, the elderly women, the young women, and the young men in relation to the concepts of sound doctrine. And the fact of the matter is, truth is all that we have, isn't it? Truth is all any of us have. We live in a time where this is more apparent than ever. The airwaves are filled with lies so that no one really knows what to believe or who to believe. Everyone has an ulterior motive for why they say what they say. I don't know if we should have locked down for the virus. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't know either because we don't have enough information to know one way or another because everything has an agenda. Everybody has a reason to say what they want to say and what they're going to say. The best we can do is to do the best we can. And at the end of the day, we have to trust someone, right? Lies pervade our society from the top down. There's no stability in culture. Our society seeks to the experts, to science so-called, to government, to money, to things, to insurance, to anything and everything, looking for stability. But there's no safety net big enough to catch everyone in every situation. But God's word stands forth as the fundamental anchor in storms of misinformation. The fundamental anchor in times where we can't know, where we don't know. We spoke a few minutes ago about Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. The point of the church is given in Ephesians chapter 4. And as Paul tells us what the point of the church is, we read this in verses 11 through 16. 
Okay, we're there. Good. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the, work of the, uh, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is what God has done. He's given to the church the apostles, the prophets, uh, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Notice the reason in verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual excuse me, the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The whole point of the apostles and prophets forming the foundation of the church and then the evangelist and pastor teacher building the church upon that foundation is that the body not be as children tossed to and fro. Is that the body not be as children carried away with every wind of doctrine or every deceit of men, or every craftiness of lies by circumstances, by promises, by assumptions, by whatever it might be. That as doctrines, as teachings, as ideas, as thoughts about God, about the nature of eternity, about the nature of, of this world and the world that is to come, that as they flow through this river of time, that we are anchored to a soundness of teaching to a clarity of understanding that though we may not always know what is right and what is best as it relates to any individual circumstance uh, directly from the word of God, that the principles and the precepts of scripture would form the foundation upon which we build our answers. We make our decisions. That we would not have to be uh, uh, walking on an uh, unsecure foundation as we would then seek to build upon it those things which are best. The church is, as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the pillar and the ground of truth. And that's specifically because the church has, unto the church has been committed sound doctrine. It cannot be emphasized enough just how important it is that we hold fast to, these, to the form of sound words that we have been given. Because on the day that those sound words, on the day that the doctrines, the foundational doctrines of Jesus Christ no longer hold weight in our decision-making process, either individually or as a church. We talked on Tuesday night about some of the elements of, of, of how we are going to conduct ourselves within the body as it relates to the various things going on. And as we did so, we sought to bring it back down, not necessarily to what we know or don't know about things going on in the world, what information we have or don't have, but let's just talk about what the Bible says, right? Because that's all we've got. That's the only sturdy foundation that we have. Now we can build upon that any number of applications, any number of decisions, but we need to be in consistency and in alignment with the principles of the word of God. It's all that we've got to hang on to that is foundational and solid. Paul does use here, here however, a, a unique and important modifier as it relates to this concept of the sound words, of the sound doctrine. He, he doesn't just say here, as we might see in any number of places, we talked about it in Titus chapter 2 and in, in, in uh, 2 Peter. He doesn't just say hold fast to sound doctrine here, does he? He says hold fast to the form of sound doctrine. This word meaning in the Greek a, a, a pattern, a template. It's a derivation of the word tupos, which we've talked about before when we talk about the type-antitype relationships in the Bible. We've talked about type-antitype, and we've, we've uh, talked about the various types in Scripture, things that are types of Christ, the ark in Noah's day being a type of salvation, right? The serpent that is put up on the, uh, the brazen serpent that's put up on the standard is a type of Christ, a type of salvation. And so we talked through these various types and that type meaning that it is a pattern of some greater fulfillment down the road. Now this is a, a very similar word. It's hupa tupa, uh, in this case, hupa tupa sis. It's derivation of that word tupas. 
And the concept behind the word is that the teachings which the prophets and apostles laid down establishes a pattern upon which the church bases its actions and its teachings. Men who were in my preaching class, we talked about this idea, the patterns of meeting, right? That we have a specific meaning in the text, and then we can broaden that meaning to cover a pattern of meaning. We can take the initial instruction and we can draw out from it a pattern of understanding by which we frame our lives and our teaching and our understanding and even our interpretation of the word of God. So the doctrines that the prophets and apostles laid down form the, the, the template, the pattern upon which we base our actions and our teachings. We consider the teachings found directly in the scriptures. And then we formulate standards, operations, principles intended to be consistent and in line with those teachings. So that while sound doctrine directly from the scriptures does not give us explicit instruction regarding every contingency of life, it does give us a fully, a full and competent framework in which to operate and by which we can judge each and every event and contingency to establish the principles that undergird our teachings and the way in which we live our lives. We might liken this to what we see as it relates to our government, to what we see as it relates to our, our civic rights, right? We have a constitution and a bill of rights. And it did not, nor could it possibly, foresee every contingency of society for hundreds of years, right? It, the, 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 the framers did not foresee vehicles, did not foresee computers in our pockets, did not foresee computers out of our pockets, did not foresee airplanes, did not foresee these things. And then it is for us to take the pattern of liberty and of responsibility that they laid down in these documents and then to draw out from them the pattern by which we govern these various new elements of life and society, right? And that is our charge. That's our opportunity. That's what we would seek to do as a country, or at least a portion of the country would seek to do to maintain the pattern of consistency and then to draw out from them the means by which then we would apply that pattern to all of the new and unforeseen contingencies of life. Now, there's nothing in life that is unforeseen to the Lord, but there's any number of elements of life that the scriptures don't speak to directly as it relates to the nitty-gritty as it relates to how any given individual or society would apply itself in this world, as it relates to the manner of living in, in a world of technology, the manner of living in a world where uh, um, bartering and, and uh, of, of uh, cash transactions and the things which have undergird society for, for millennia are now going by the wayside. And so then we have to take the form of sound doctrine, hold fast first to the pattern and then take that pattern and do our best to apply it to our daily lives. And I love that last part, that as we seek to hold fast the form of sound words delivered unto us, that we do it in a twofold manner. This is, this is the, the template by which we do this. The first thing is faith, and the second is love. Now we know from Romans 14, verse 23, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So as we seek to establish the framework for our own lives, as we pattern our lives and decisions after the teachings of sound doctrine, we're careful to do what we do in faith. Not building our lives upon a pattern of other men's thoughts, right? Not building our, our lives upon a pattern of other men's desires, but upon the pattern of sound doctrine. Not building our lives upon a pattern of a religious system, but on sound doctrine. Not building our lives upon the pattern of the world system, of the world's thinking, but on a pattern of sound doctrine. And we cannot cheat this system, can we? This is one of the interesting things about, uh, uh, the, about true religion about a relationship with Jesus Christ is that you can't counterfeit faith, can you? You can counterfeit any number of elements of, uh, of, of the outward trappings of a faith system. You can counterfeit the look. You can counterfeit the sound. You can counterfeit the mannerisms. You can counterfeit all of those things. But you can't 
cheat the system as it relates to faith, because faith is something that is inward, right? God has designed a relationship with himself to be an inside-out manner of living. I've said that a lot of times. God has not designed an outside-in system. He's designed an inside-out system. It starts in the heart, and then it works its way out. Faith is a matter of the heart between you and God, between me and God, between our church and God. And the rewards of faith are not the rewards of a set of actions. There are a number of sets of actions that we do in the Christian faith uh, that are beneficial as it relates to honesty, as it relates to integrity, as it relates to work ethic, as it relates to uh, debt, as it relates to morality, all of these things. And yet the world can counterfeit any of those things, can't they? The world can counterfeit not getting into debt, not uh, um, uh, being, being morally pure until marriage, uh, being, uh, ha- having good work ethic and integrity, and they will receive the same societal benefits of that framework of morality as you will. But you can't counterfeit faith. The rewards of faith are not just the exterior rewards of obedience to God's framework. The rewards of faith are spiritual. The rewards of faith are inward. Just as faith is an inward-out proposition, faith starts in the heart, it works itself out into actions. There are natural benefits to those actions, whether I have that faith or not, but the only person that's going to benefit from the inward results of those actions are those who are doing them in faith. And so love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, right? The the fruit of the Spirit. All of those elements of an inward life of peace and of joy and of contentment with, uh, with others and with my God, that comes only to those who are ministered unto them by the Spirit of God through faith. So we hold fast in faith in Christ Jesus and also in love, which is in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, 19 reminds us that we love him because he first loved us. Our faith roots us in truth. Our love compels us unto allegiance to truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 merges this concept brilliantly, the concept of faith and the concept of truth. We read in 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. See, we walk by faith, in which we will face trials, but we will rejoice in those trials, because though we have not seen God, Yet we walk by faith, we know God, we trust God, we do so, we walk in this faith, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, those things which are called to make our faith stronger because we love him. We have not seen him, but we know him. We have not seen him, but we love him. And we live in light of the fullest expectation of the end of our faith in love because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And what does it produce in us? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's a lot of angry people right now, aren't there? Our society is a powder keg, and we've seen that over this last week, right? Here in Minneapolis. People are, 40 million people have lost their jobs. People are divided purposefully by the media, purposefully dividing us one from another, seeking unto that division, fostering that division, putting fuel on that fire. People are afraid. And what happens when you have a bunch of people who are afraid, who have lost their livelihoods, who don't know what's around the corner, and who are being purposefully divided? You have angry, angry people. And yet what works in us? What does God, what can God work in us? Joy unspeakable and full of glory, 
even though our faith may be tried by fire, we live according to the form of sound words. We live in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And we find joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. I hope that that's what you are experiencing today. I know that there's a lot going on in your lives, in society, in, in, in the church. And yet, we can, even in these times of the trials of our faith, experience joy. And let me just say this as well. There are some Christians who struggle because in the times of trials of their faith, they feel joy and they almost feel guilty about it. They're supposed to, I mean, it's a, it's a trial. It's a hard time. Why don't I feel as bad as I feel like I should feel? And they feel, don't feel guilty about joy. Never feel guilty about joy. If God has placed joy in your heart, even in the midst of hard times, even in the midst of trials, there's something going right, not something going wrong, okay? Now, of course, joy is different from sadness. Joy is different from happiness. Happiness and sadness are circumstantial, right? They're a part of life. They're a part of the roller coaster of the ups and downs of life. But in the midst of all of those ups and downs, there's supposed to be a constant, and that is joy. Never feel guilty over joy. Never feel bad when joy is present. That means something is going right. Verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. That good thing which, is, which was committed unto thee. What good thing? Sound doctrine. Hold fast to the sound words which we've given to you. That good thing. Keep it. It's been committed to you by the Holy Ghost. Carry it forward. I love this verse, not just for what it is, but for it, its parallel. If you've got your Bibles, look back at verse 12. Paul said this, For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So in verse 12, we, do you see the parallel between verse 12 and verse 14? In verse 12, Paul expressed a confidence in faith that God would keep what he, Paul, had committed unto God against the day of Christ's return and of judgment. That God would guard the rewards of Paul's faith. That God would guard the fact that Paul is suffering today in light of the joys of tomorrow. So Paul says, God is more than capable of taking all of my, 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 my suffering and all of my uh, yieldedness and all of the things in which, which are being asked of me in this life and keep the rewards of that until the day I'm committing them to him and he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, unto that day. I'm living today for the rewards of tomorrow. And then Paul, just two verses later, says, now Timothy, in light of all that, keep what has been committed unto you. The day when Paul stepped into eternity, he would find the rewards waiting for him of his sacrifices. And in that same vein, Paul says, you've been given sound doctrine today. Guard it. Keep it. God will keep for you. It's his responsibility. He'll take care of that. Now you do your part. God will do his part. You do yours. Can you trust God in faith and love to do this? God has his part to do. God has, has many promises of the things that are to come. Those promises are what we call our blessed hope. It is the only hope that we have. Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's the thing. Christ is risen from the dead. He has become the first fruit of them that slept. And because he's risen from the dead, he has proven that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. And so I will in faith commit it unto him. And then he in turn, has committed something unto us. And we'll talk more about that in our application. In the remainder of the chapter, Paul speaks very personally of his own experiences with various ministers and individuals. He says in verses 15 through 18, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Figelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. 
But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. Paul relays a series of events here of which there is very little detail in Scripture. He states that all those in Asia had turned away from him. Asia at this time uh, would have been that area that we would say is modern-day Turkey, that Galatia area. Ephesus was within that area where Timothy was at this time. This could be a reference to a couple of different things. Uh, Remember, Paul is again under arrest after a period of freedom. So he was uh, under arrest in Rome, and then we believe that he was probably released for a, a couple of years, and then he was again arrested in Rome, and he finds himself in that time. And Paul, within the scope of 2 Timothy, having no expectation of getting out again. He, he believes that this arrest is his final arrest, that it will end in his martyrdom, as we would understand the spirit of this book. Paul talking about him running his race and finishing his course. And, and he's, he's got a very fine, fine, there's a lot of finality to 2 Timothy. Perhaps it is that the forsaking of all in Asia is a reference to the general lack of support that Paul has received in his time under arrest. Maybe uh, there has not been the same outpouring of, of support that he experienced the first time. It could also speak of a, a general apostasy. Um, that had been growing in the churches of Asia, a a general rejection of Paul's rebukes. There's a little bit of support for that second idea when we get to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, right? John wrote the Revelation of Jesus Christ while he was on the Isle of Patmos. We know that that is, uh, as as best we can tell, the, the latest of all of the writings of the apostles. And within the scope of that, we see those seven letters to those seven churches and we find that with the exception of the Church of Philadelphia, there was already a general dulling of the blade of, of, the, the, of sound doctrine within the churches. Philadelphia uh, was a, a church that was vibrant and many of the churches had commendations, but even in the Church of Ephesus, they had left their first love. So we see that these various churches were in various states of uh, degradation already. So it could be that this forsaking was that when Paul left prison the first time uh, uh, from Rome and he spent those couple of years traveling, what he found is that the spirit of the churches were no longer nearly as receptive to his teaching as they once were. That they had already found their own niche, that they had already gone their own way, that they already had in their mind their own ideas. And that would be generally consistent with the exhortation that we found in verse 13, to hold fast to sound doctrine. It may also be, however, simply that idea that Paul did not feel the same level of support after his arrest, that the churches kind of said, oh, Paul's arrested again and out of sight, out of mind, and they didn't come to his aid as he had, ex- as had expected. That would be supported by Paul's general confidence that he was finishing his course, that he's not going to get out again, because he does not necessarily have the spirit of the churches willing with him his his release. Either one of those or maybe something else. If you have another idea, I'd love to hear it. Feel free to call me, text me, contact me, chat with me in person. One of those neat things we can do now. And uh, I'd love to hear your idea as it relates to these things. But that's a couple of different possibilities as to what it means that the churches of Asia had forsaken him or that those in Asia, more specifically, um, all they which are in Asia were turned against him. It also could uh, have nothing to do, this, this is one of the other ones that could have nothing to do with the churches, although that one seems a bit far out considering the context here that it had, had to do otherwise with just um, secular forsaking, but, but that seems unlikely. And Paul mentions two men specifically by name, Phagellus and Hermogenes. And he contrasts them, whatever particular rejection uh, he faced from them with the faithfulness of the house of Onesiphorus. This man and his house, of them, Paul says he desires mercy. And he lists the blessings of Onesiphorus and his house upon Paul, that they often refreshed him in his time uh, of arrest, not being ashamed of the testimony of Paul, 
And remember, this is the same exhortation that Paul had requested of Timothy back in verse 8, that he be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and of the testimony of Paul as the Lord's servant. Onesiphorus was one who lived out the boldness and support of Paul uh, that Paul desired, refreshing him, supporting him, even seeking him out in Rome and finding him. Again, all of this would lend credence to the idea that the forsaking had to do with perhaps support, not with apostasy in general. Now, Onesiphorus is mentioned here in chapter 1, and he's also mentioned again in chapter 4. Paul states here in verse 18 that Onesiphorus is a resident of the city into which Timothy ministered, that being Ephesus. We might presume based upon this and the fact that Paul names a couple of men by name, expecting Timothy to know who they were, that Figelus and Hermogenes were also perhaps of Ephesus. And all of this being not simply statements of a man who feels abandoned, but far more than this, Paul is attempting to show by example the kind of steadfastness in the midst of sorrow and trial that he wants Timothy to have to remind Timothy of the deep necessity of this faithfulness as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold fast to found doc sound doctrine, sound words, love of the brethren. Don't lose sight as many have already done. And of course, this exhortation falls upon us as well. A couple of points of application as we close this morning. Point number one of three. Hold fast to sound doctrine. We are reminded, first of all, of the essential nature of biblical truth and of sound doctrine. We spoke a few moments ago of the unique times in which we live. One of the most stunning elements of the events surrounding this virus is how quickly the world fell back upon the word of so-called experts in a time of unknown. And it turns out almost everything that these experts predicted has been terribly wrong and yet people are still listening to them because people are looking for some authority, but they have abandoned true authority. And in the vacuum of true authority, you're going to serve someone. Everybody serves someone. If you're not serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you're going to be serving a petty tyrant somewhere. The world longs for the stability something to make them feel secure, help them make sense of the world around them, and all of this while maintaining their status quo. In good times, people turn to money. They turn to power. They turn to celebrities, politicians, and sports stars to be their, their go-tos, to give them that sense of stability and security and that, that, that sense of, of aspiration. But then something dangerous comes along like this virus. And their money can't help them. Money, money, money can't help you when there's a virus going around, can it? Their safety net is the government. But the government has no means by which to do anything for them other than to put things in place that aren't going to do any good and probably make things worse, as we've seen. So they live in fear and they live in panic. Their resolution, their contentment, their understanding of the world, the understanding of their lives, it crumbles before their very eyes and there's nothing that can be done about it because it's an unnamed fear. It's an unknown enemy. You can't just look a virus in the eye and say it's either you or me. It doesn't work that way. They have no confident means by which to operate. But this is not the fate of those who trust in the Lord. For as Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 reminds us, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The reason why the believer can live in confidence and express peace in this time as with any time is because your times and your seasons do not rest in the hands of a virus. Your times and your seasons do not rest in the hands of criminals. Your times and your seasons do not rest in the hand of the government or the medical experts. Your times and seasons do not rest in the hands of your bank account. Your times and your seasons rest in the hands of the Lord. And so we don't wait upon our bank account. We don't wait upon our government. 
We don't wait upon the medical experts. We don't wait upon any human system. We wait upon the Lord. We hold fast to sound doctrine found in the word of God. This becomes our anchor. This becomes our stay. And it is for this very same reason that we must defend it so vehemently. Because if we allow the world, the flesh, or the devil to strip from us the only distinction, the only truth, to strip from us sound doctrine, they have stripped from us the only anchor, the only means of peace, the only means by which we can relate ourselves properly to the world that is around us. And it is the truth that will make us free. Rooted in the word of God. And it must be defended by the church of God. So we hold fast to scriptures first of all. And then we filter every truth claim, every thought process, every manner of living through it. Through the authoritative lens of God's inspired and preserved word. Point two. Hold fast to the practical outworking of sound doctrine. So once we have sound doctrine and we're holding fast to sound doctrine, we build upon it, upon it the practical outworkings of its exhortations. It's not just enough for us to hold the lines on the concepts presented in God's word, but then to build upon those concepts, the practical principles by which we live our lives. In other words, it is not only our privilege to stand upon the principles that become truth, but then to work out those concepts into a manner, into the manner in which we live our daily lives. It's not enough for us to preach, husbands, love your wives. And wives, submit to your husbands. But only that we build our marriage upon these critical truths and strive in every day-by-day -day application to fit that action, that thought process, those words, those deeds into the framework of Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Right? Those words, that doctrine, holding fast to the actual doctrine is only as good as the degree to which we also hold fast to the form of doctrine in the way that we live our lives. It's not enough for us to know, to preach, to hold fast to the concept of honoring your parents, obeying your masters, honoring the king, but then to use those truth principles that we know and that we hold to and that we understand as the very basis for how we build our operational lives as individuals and as a church. Sound doctrine espouses that we tell the truth and don't lie. Now we build this truth framework into how we interact with one another, into how we live, into how we speak, into how we do our taxes, into how we fill out applications. If that practical, if the, if, if the practical nitty-gritty of how we live our lives is not in the form of sound doctrine, then that sound doctrine might be established and praise the Lord for that, but it's not bearing out the practical realities of life and godliness. In other words, we can't just fight to the death to maintain the, the, the words of the Word of God. We need to fight not just to keep the world out of the church as it relates to to the nature of sound doctrine itself. But we also have to live it. We have to live it. We have to build our lives upon it. Where, when, how we work, where, when, how we go, how we spend our money, our view of debt, our view of giving, our view of medicine, our view of everything. Is it following? after the form of sound words. As we've said any number of times, the manner in which we live our lives, the manner in which we live out these truths, they might look different one from another. This is natural, understandable. It's even a wonderful thing in the church. But are you holding fast to the form of sound words? Can you honestly say that the manner in which you live, that your family lives, that, that, that the framework of your daily interaction is built is in the form and the pattern of that which God has laid out in his word. Final point. God will keep that which is committed unto him. Now you keep that which is committed unto you. It's our privilege to trust the Lord with that unto which he has promised us. It's our privilege to live in faith today, believing in utmost confidence in God's ability and will to give us everything that he has promised unto those who place their hope in him. 
This is the joy and the glory that rests in the hearts of those who put their faith in God. Now there's coming a day when any shame, any sorrow, any loss, any suffering for the cause of Christ in this earth will give way to the glorious joys of the life that is to come. That day is coming. God has promised it. It's there. We will tread those streets of gold. There will be no more fear. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. We will hear those words for which we all live. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We will enter into the joy of our Lord. That is all that we have committed unto God against that day. And rest assured that God is fully able and willing to keep it for us according to the testimony of the word of God. And in light of such promises, we in faith and in love are then called to forge a commitment of our own. God will do his part. Will we do ours? God will keep that which we have committed unto him. Will we keep that which God has committed unto us? And what has God committed unto us? The form of sound words. Sound doctrine. Love one another. Do good to all men. Pray one for another. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Individual giftings and opportunities. As the Lord has gifted us, so too we live. Some faith, some edification, some giving, some teaching. We take the gifts that the Lord has given to us and we live them out. We bear them out in our lives. We seek unto holding fast, taking that which God has committed unto us against that day, and we live it out. We identify what God has given to us, the gifts he's given to us, the commandments, the sound doctrines that he has laid out in his word, and we minister in joy and in singleness of heart. We live in a manner that is consistent in order that we might keep what God has committed unto us as God will keep that which we have committed unto him. And let us not fail. Let us not fail to keep that which God has committed unto us. So we take life one day at a time. We allow God to use us in the way that he will. We build our lives upon this firm foundation. God gives us joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then, as we will particularly see tonight in Philippians, that becomes the basis for our testimony and it becomes the basis for our interaction one with another. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.